som du vill om du släpper dem bara. Det får du väl bedöma om du tycker att han håller spåren bara. A man went hunting one autumn after it had snowed. He came across a bear track leading straight to the door of a lap hut. When he peered into the hut, he saw an old lap sitting there smoking his pipe. The hunter got scared and ran, but when he looked back, he saw a bear trotting after him. He knew right away that it was the old lap who had changed into a bear. He climbed up into a tree, and when the bear came after him, he fired. The bear said, Oh, drat, and then was silent. He was dead. When the hunter flayed his prey, he found a tin belt and a pouch with a tinderbox under the bear's skin. Olaf Jacobson told me this story, and he said that the belt and pouch are stored in the cathedral in Uppsala. A folk legend collected by Levi Johansson in 1930 from Hans Hansen in Frostviken, Jamtland, Sweden. Det ser ut som att jag får en björn här. Det ser ut som att vi spårar en björn. Men... This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. The beautiful music on today's episode is being played on the nickel harpa, which is a traditional Swedish instrument, which means a keyed fiddle. I highly recommend going onto YouTube if you've never seen one of those things, because they are really neat looking. So there'll be three beautiful pieces on today's episode, all of which are performed by Nickel Harpa Tunes on YouTube. The folk story in the intro is from Scandinavian folk belief and legend edited by Raymond Kvidland and Kenning Semsdorf. And please, with all these Nordic episodes, you're going to have to forgive me if I'm mispronouncing these names. But uh, when... In these older books, when they say a la- the laps, they're talking about, it, that's an outdated term. And they're talking about the Sami people who are the indigenous people of Northern Scandinavia. So in the reading before we get to the interview, when, I, when we talk about the laps and their uh, rituals um, and with the bear hunt, it's about the Sami. So today's episode is with Rasmus Bostrom. If you want it in Swedish, Rasmus Bostrom. And he is a professional hunter. And he's affiliated with some Swedish uh, outdoors and hunting apparel companies, uh, Bearskin and Astro Sweden, who both have YouTube channels where you can see Rasmus out in the fields doing many of the things that we talk about on this episode. We are mainly going to hear about the brown bear hunt in Sweden. 
Also going to hear about hunting birds from skis, which looks and sounds so awesome. And you're also going to hear about uh, some of his work hunting with dogs, invasive mink on little islands to help protect the seabirds, which is totally how unique, very unique. So that was really interesting and towards the end. So this is the third episode in my little Scandinavian series. If you've been listening from the beginning, we went on a big trip to Norway and I found the whole thing so inspiring. I wanted to do a series with various elements of um, Scandinavian culture. So the first one was about Icelandic folklore and the history of the sorcerers on that island. Uh, the second one was about uh, metalwork um, dating back to the Viking age. Today's is about hunting and with some historical elements, we talk about the uh, traditional hunting with spears, both with the, you know, both with the people of like the 1600s or whatnot and with the, the Sami. And uh, from here, I do have some plans on where to go. I'm hoping to get into some folk music. I'm hoping to get into some archeology, span but to be honest, it's been pretty hard to, you know, uh, organize this, uh, this uh, series from so far away. So my first thank you goes out to Bear Saragusa, who uh, sent me in the direction of Rasmus. So Bear has been on the podcast. We did an episode about his former life as a dog musher in Maine. And uh, the, for the first half of that episode, I consider that the prequel of this Scandinavian series because he lives in Norway and married a Norwegian. And uh, we talked all about just uh, the stave churches and just kind of the mystery of having an outdoor life on that landscape, including talking about moose hunting over the remains of these Viking moose hunting pits. That was one of the highlights. So big thank you to Bear because when I was in Norway, I was telling him, um, you know, I'm seeing all this stuff in the museums about bear hunting, you know, in medieval times and just all of this stuff. And I was asking him, you know, I would love to, 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 to broach this topic on the podcast. Do you have any ideas of someone I could talk to? And he said, you got to talk to Erasmus. He's a bear hunter today. And, you know, he'll know a bit about the history. So thank you to bear. After bear, I got to say thank you to everyone on Patreon, because without you, I wouldn't have even, you know, I wouldn't have dared to try sending a microphone and headset all the way to Sweden and uh, let it bounce around from guest to guest. So thank you guys for your support. Um, firstly, big thank you to Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, Alexander Kurashev, who's a bear hunter, Ann Stanley, Kaylee Lindman, Craig Coring, Diana Gonzalez, Earl C. Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jacob Griffin, who's also a bear hunter, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Jeff McLaughlin, Les Paget of Mossy Cup Farm, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Michael Zorn, Michelle Alderson, uh, Michael, uh, Michelle Miller, Nathan Griffin, who's also a bear hunter, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Goeckner, Sophie McVicker, T. Pierce, The Militant Hippie, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, Waddle and Dob Craftsman, The Working Class Woodsman, who's also a bear hunter, and everyone at the lower tiers. Uh, thank you, everybody. So I really 
enjoy today's reading. This is from a book called A Lycanthropy Reader. And I guess the word lycanthropy means, let's see what it says. The definition is a delusion that one has become a wolf. So this is titled A Lycanthropy Reader, Werewolves in Western Culture by Charlotte F. Auten. And there's a whole section about bears. Animals which play a part in shape-changing stories are bears, wolves, walrus, and pigs, and occasionally cattle, goats, dogs, and fish. An example of how vigorous and yet how elusive such accounts may be is a story from the saga of Rolf Kraki, an early king of Denmark. This belongs to a group known as Sagas of Old Time, or Lying Sagas, and is a tale based on old heroic traditions skillfully retold popular folklore, and strange happenings set in the pagan past. The central figure is not so much King Hrolf, who, like King Arthur, collected many celebrated champions around him, but one of his loyal followers, Bodvar Bjarki. Bodvar's father, Bjorn, had been changed into a bear by a wicked stepmother when he rejected her advances, and he was finally hunted to his death by men and dogs. During his time as a bear, he was able to resume his human form at night, and a girl named Bera joined him in his cave. Before he was killed, he warned her never to eat bear's flesh, but the wicked queen forced her to swallow a mouthful. Bera bore three sons after Bjorn's death. The first was half man and half elk. The second had dog's feet. And the third was Bodvar Bjarki, who at first appeared wholly human. But when the time came for King Hrolf to fight his final battle against overwhelming odds, since he was being attacked by evil supernatural powers, Bodvar showed that he too had characteristics beyond the ordinary. He was unaccountably missing from the forefront of the battle, but a wonderful event took place. Men saw that a great bear went before King Hrolf's men, keeping always near the king. He slew more men with his forepaw than any five of the king's champions. Blades and weapons glanced off him, and he brought down both men and horses in King Jorvard's forces. Everything which came in his path he crushed to death with his teeth, so that panic and terror swept through King Jorvard's army. Meanwhile, Bodvar's friend Yalti had gone to look for him. And when he found the champion sitting motionless in his tent, he railed on him for his desertion of the king in time of need. At last, Bodvar rose and went out, saying that now he could help the king far less than he could have done had he been left where he was. When he reached the battlefield, the bear had gone. And from this point, the tide of battle turned against Rolf and his followers, and they went down fighting round their king. The implication here is clear. Bodvar fights in bear form while his body remains motionless in his tent. The battle in which he fought was one famous in Danish heroic tradition. The bear was the most powerful and dangerous animal in the Scandinavian north, likely to leave a vivid impression on those who hunted him for food. Bear skins were evidently used as something on which the dead could be laid, or perhaps wrapped around them in the grave, 
as is shown by traces of the claws surviving in graves in Norway and Sweden in the period before the Viking Age. Snorri Sturluson, in the introduction to the Prose Edda, has a reference to the youthful Thor proving his strength by lifting 12 bearskins from the ground at once. In search for traces of initiation ceremony in the Icelandic sagas, Mary Danielli quotes a number of tales where the hero has to encounter a bear as proof of his manhood. In one of these, a youth wears a bearskin cloak until he comes back with the bear's snout to prove that he has overcome it. In another, the fur cloak is thrown at the bear by the leader of a band of men, testing the young hero, and he has to recover it and cut off the bear's paw. Moreover, in several of the stories, the company of men, sometimes specified as berserkers, is twelve in number, and the leader is called Bjorn. It is therefore possible that the twelve bearskins lifted by Thor have some special significance, and that behind such confused traditions lies the memory of testing young warriors entering a company of berserkers by arranging an encounter with a bear real or simulated, and that the warriors put on bearskins for such ceremonies. Among the Laps in later times, we know that the bear was honored by special names and elaborate ceremonies, which have been well recorded in a number of different regions. The word saevo used for a slain bear is the same as that used for the spirits of men who have died. And at the bear feast, it may be noted that the hunter who had killed the bear put on the head and skin of the dead animal. There was a well-established custom also of drinking the blood of the bear in order to obtain something of its strength and courage. Such practices form a promising basis for tales of shape-changing between men and bears. Those who have studied the bear cult among the Laps and other northern peoples emphasize that it was the enormous strength of the animal and its strange habits which distinguished it from other wild beasts. Above all, the ability to survive the winter without food, which caused wonder and made the bear specially revered by those who hunted it. Although highly dangerous and a formidable adversary, the bear was not thought to be an evil beast like the wolf. Its flesh was of a great benefit to men, and many parts of the body, especially the fat, were believed to possess special powers of healing. It was felt to have a close link with men, partly because of its tendency to rear itself on its hind legs and to strike a victim with its forepaw or to hug him to death. Its footprints resembled those of men, and it was thought to look like a human being when skinned. Well, I live about, uh, you could say, uh, south of the middle of Sweden, uh, but pretty much north, you could say, in the biggest part of uh, the Scandinavian peninsula, I think the name is, half island, uh, together with Norway and Sweden. And that makes the, the, the winters really hard, you could say. Actually... The area I live in is where we usually have the coldest winters and the best snow conditions also. So how is it right now? Is you got snow already? Yeah, well, we got some snow, but uh, most mostly because it's really cold. 
And so are you, because obviously today we're going to be talking all about hunting. Are you, are the hunting grounds that, that you hunt on, are those like in your backyard? Are you surrounded by huge patches of wilderness? No, you could say there isn't any, too much uh, wilderness. I mean, there, you have roads all over the place, more or less anyway. But, you know, during the winter time, a lot of them are closed and, you know, they're they're not uh, plowed. Uh, but anyway, I, I have my hunting grounds around me, you could say. Well, I have. And a quick question about where you live. I read an article. Um, is it called Alv, Alv, Alvdalen? Yeah, River Valley. <laughs> That's what that means? Yeah, Alvdalen. Okay. That's a, uh, uh, yeah, River Valley. And I read this article, and, you know, I really like, with my podcast, I really like to just hear about, like, different cultures in the world. And one thing I read about your area is that it had its own language. Is it called Alfdalen? Is that the name of the language? And do you speak it, or or is it a dying language? Do you like? Well, uh, well, we you could call the 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 language Elvdal uh, It's uh, the river river valley talk. <laughs> uh, I I don't speak it really. You know, you see, I I come about uh, three hundred kilometers south of here. Uh, I'm born there. I moved up when I was about uh, nineteen years old. Okay, okay. So, but I still can talk some, and I understand everything. But it, it's it's a whole altogether uh, own language, you could say. Is With, it is. Is it going extinct? Or are there people still keeping it going? Well, there, there are people still go, keeping it going, and you have uh, actually you can read uh, in classes also. So during the the when you go in school, you can learn more about it also. Okay, well, that's great. So yeah, just a quick aside. My mom is from Belgium, and she's she's uh, a French speaking Belgian, and. Um, the area she's from is called Wallonia, and there are languages in her region that she grew up only speaking French, but she there are these Wallonian languages that are going extinct. So I, I think it's kind of interesting that Europe has all these small languages that are kind of, you know, I guess some of them are being preserved, but some of them are dying out, and I just think that, that that's kind of fascinating cultural topic. Well, it is. It is. Uh, I think, you know... The the Elvdal, the the river valley talk you could say it's a, a little so, something like uh, the Icelandic. Okay. Uh, but not but you can hear some words that are pretty similar anyway, and you know they are far apart. But anyway, I'm pretty sure that they are about the same origin for one. You know, about a thousand years or so. <laughs> Do you know anything? Do you know a single word? I know you said you understand it, but can you say anything? Uh, well, <laughs> I have to really talk to to say anything special. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Well, so what? So you said you didn't grow up there. What brought you to that area? Did you grow up in the countryside? Did you grow up in the city? And then, obviously, hunting is your whole life. So, how did you? What was that path? 
Well, I actually grew up on the countryside, but south okay. of here. Okay. And uh, I um, I went. Um, I I actually met a girl when I was uh, eighteen. I think it was. Uh, up here, and I sort of moved. I was up here visiting visiting a friend, and we hunted together some. And I just thought, you know, there are a really small amount of people around here, and the big chunk of land that you can hunt on. So I sort of moved up here. <laughs> and is that land is so here in America? We have these public lands. We've got national forest. We've got um, some. Uh, I think BLM out west. Um, we've got state forests. We've got uh, wildlife management areas, and these are all uh, areas that people can camp. They can hike and horseback ride. They can do river sports. They can hunt. They can trap, for the most part. Um, is it very similar where you are? Well, it's a little divided. I mean, thanks to the Swedish community rule. Uh, well, you. Every citizen and outside citizen, of course, has the same right to be all over the place, you could say. I mean, if you like camping or whatever, you have nothing, almost nothing that are closed. So so everyone is allowed to go every, or all over where they want to camp, for, for example. Even on your land, if you owned 100 yeah. acres, they can yeah. camp there? Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like I think Scotland with the with the hiking laws. I think you can walk anywhere. Yeah, it's free, uh, free something. I I can't, you know, my English isn't that really good. But sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but you're free to to camp and go wherever you want, even if it's a, a private landowner and everything. Wow. Okay. So, but uh, the hunting is uh, is is. Uh, tied to the landowner you could say but we have you know state land that, that the state owns that you can buy hunting permission on uh, otherwise you have all usually there are a lot of um, you know landowners that goes together and they have a sort of hunting club that's the that's the the nor most normal in Sweden yeah. And one thing before we really get into like your life and what your how you hunt, um, I just thought it'd be kind of cool to kind of get to do a little bit of the history. Um, you know, I think when Americans, you know, even me with my European parents, um, I thought, you know, you kind of hear this story that there's, you know, um, basically that the common man wasn't allowed to hunt in Europe. And that seems to be the case for like England and whatnot, where the common man, the farmer, they were, ten, you know, tenant farmers on someone else's land, whether it was the church or whether it was, uh, you know, royalty or some lord. But it seems as though when I visited Scandinavia, I visited Norway um, in September and we went to the Folk Museum in Oslo and I was kind of really surprised to see all of this stuff about the farmers in Norway in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, who were hunters as well, who were bear hunters. And I was like, oh, wow, I guess in Norway, the farmers were still able to hunt off of the land. Was that, was, 
Like, what's the history there? Was all of the people of Scandinavia kind of allowed to keep doing this through through the centuries? Uh, yeah, well, you could say, uh, apart from that, uh, the moose and the, uh, the deers and some of, you know, meat uh, animals, they were held, uh, at least at one time, they were held for the high people. You know, ah, the, okay. The same, the kings and the semi kings and such. Okay. Uh, but apart from that, for example, bear and uh, wolverine and lynx and everything. I mean, uh, the thing is that you had a uh, you had big uh, bounties on killing that that kind of animals for a. Uh, I mean, up in the 1900s, middle of middle of 1900, you have. You had big uh, bounties for killing a bear, example, we, uh, for example, or a wolverine and such, because they were such a big menace to the the people on the countryside that was trying to survive, and a wolf, of course, also. Well, that's exactly what it said at the folk museum in Oslo. It basically said it had a you know behind the glass, it had a little diorama of a of a standing brown bear and, and a man in 1700s clothes with some kind of muzzle-loading rifle and uh, a bear spear. And mm. it basically said that in that time period in Norway, the bear hunters, you know, today I think, boy, I think people probably don't really like bear hunters if you went to a city in America. But in that time period, you know, it said that basically the bear hunters were like one of the most, um, uh, what's the right word, that respected and revered uh, people in the far, in the countryside, and that the you know certainly to me it's like you know they must have been definitely the most brave people in the community to be able to face a bear with one shot and then a spear. I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, well absolutely. Well, as it was, the, I mean, on the countryside, I mean, I think it's about the same Sweden and Norway because it's just a border in between them. Uh, and I think, uh, well, I know that, I mean, the, the ability to take out the big predators was the most important thing for everyone. You even had a law in Sweden that said that if you, um, if you gathered for example, with, with example, a wolf hunt, you have to par- participate or a bear hunt. You have to participate as a, a driver, you know. Uh, I mean, to, to push the animals uh, against a special direction. Because otherwise you can go to jail for it if you don't uh, participate on it. Wow. Wait, so can you kind of repeat that? So is it's saying that in in the countryside, if you were a man in the village... By law, you had to take if there was a, a troublesome wolf or a dangerous bear that was killing livestock, you had to join the posse. Basically, you had to join the group yeah. on the hunt. Yeah, wow, you or had what? To. There, there actually was a law, and you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, sneak out of it. But, but normally, it was like it's the only people that had a, a good muscle odor and everything they were the people that were standing in the front and the other one was dry, you know pushing that the 
the bears and the wolf uh, towards them, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, drive. Like yeah, the, dri them. the drive. Yeah, that's correct. So, so, th so they were kind of like, but you know, being loud or bushwhacking, kind of pushing through the foliage to kind of funnel the bear or the wolf to the the hunter with the muzzleloader. Yeah, they they were. The, that was the well, one of the, the the things they had to try to decimate the the populations, because uh, I mean, uh, you know, the thing is what it. People around here was really, really poor by that time, and I mean, they maybe had ten goats, two cows, and you know such. And if a bear comes and kills two cows, then they're pretty much, <laughs> you know, uh, well, then it's all over almost. Yes, exactly. And I, I did an episode with a um, a young lady who's a deer stalker in Scotland. And we kind of talked a bit about that regarding the, the last wolves in Scotland. I mean, when you're living at a survival level, I mean, your survival is really the only thing that matters. I imagine. I imagine. Oh, yeah, of course. I have full respect for that one. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so one of, the, one of the things that blew me away um, was what I mentioned with that spear. So basically, to someone who might not be too familiar with guns, in that time period you know, it takes you maybe 30 seconds to a minute or two minutes every time you load up your muzzle loader, whether it's a smooth bore or a rifle, you're loading that thing up and you get one shot. So here's this brown bear and it gets hit and it's pissed off and it's coming at the hunter in the 16 or 1700s. And their next option is using a spear. <laughs> I mean, what I mean, what do you know about the history of those spears? I saw even in the museum, they talk about the, the indigenous Sami people up north. Um, and they, they also, I think, used the bear spear. I mean, what uh, is there anything interesting you know about the spears? Well, I can start with saying it. You know, of course, I read a lot about, you know, how they did it in the day, in, back in the days, <laughs> a few hundred years ago. And the thing is that, the muscle loaders and everything was so uh, unpredictable. Oh, yeah. So, so it took, I mean, in, you had to be in the, it's actually until you got the percussion loaded uh, rifles. I, I know that I read some book anyway that the bear hunters, they preferred not having a, you know, a, a flint and frisson steel. To, to hunt with because they were so unpredictable so it was easier to carry a spear all from the beginning okay so you're saying um the flintlock which is an older design and then the percussion cap which became popular in the early 1800s i believe so before the percussion cap technology it was so unpredictable with the flintlock that they would just choose a spear i mean i can't imagine anything scarier <laughs> well yeah well I, i'm uh, I've been thinking a lot about it, of course, you know, and it is pretty wild just having a spear, a spear to, to make it. I, I mean, you have to be pretty strong and you also have to be a really, have a really good technique to survive. And of course, if you read the, the books that th there was some, some people that got pretty severely damaged and also killed by bears. Right. So um, after we went to the Folk Museum, we went to um, the National Gallery in Oslo, and they had a whole wing 
on kind of Norwegian romantic painting. And obviously you're seeing a lot of uh, paintings from the 1800s of, you know, the women and men in the Bunad traditional clothing on the farms, really beautiful paintings. And I was so surprised to see one that was about bear hunting. And the painting is called Return of the Bear Hunter. And it's just what you're saying. I mean, basically, um, the painting is of a cabin. It must be the late 1700s. And um, there's a whole groups of families in it. And um, there's a little boy carrying two cubs of a bear. The men are coming through the door with a dead bear on a pole. And there's a man who's the center of the painting who's sitting on a chair. And he's all cut up. He's, his arm is bleeding. His leg is bleeding. And the women are taking care of his wounds. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess people must have gotten hurt or killed all the time doing this stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you figured out how to use the spear. I mean, you could use it in... Uh, the, the way I, I've heard and read anything is to, that you use it in two different ways to get the bear. I mean, it just, you don't use the spear. Uh, you don't use it to throw at the bear. Right. So you have to, either you find it in the den, and then usually, if it's possible, I mean, many of the times you don't have, there aren't so often by that time lone bear hunters. Usually they went a couple of guys together. And uh, usually if they find the den, one is supposed, you know, to, to make the bear come out of the den and make an attack. You know, if you understand. Make it charge? Yeah, make it charge. Correct. And the other guy, he stands on the up on the den, you know. So he spares the bear from up in the, you know, in the chest down. Wow. <laughs> uh, or you can make the bear charge you. And then you have to put the spear really low. Because, you know, it, a normal bear, when it's running, is, is pretty low. It's, it, it isn't a high animal. So you have to make it, you know, when it comes running towards you, you know, really charging, you have to make the spare tip go in under the head, you know, in the chest, uh, at the throat. Um, that's where you have to put the, the spare in. Because otherwise you can it can slide out of the body again and go outside without killing it. And this is happening like two feet away from your hands at the end of the sphere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, normally a bear spare was, you know, wasn't that, uh, was pretty. I, re I remember I read an article that said a bear spare is supposed to be a man's arm wide. I, I mean, with the. From fingertip to fingertip, if you stretch your arms out. Like Jesus Christ? Well, no, I mean uh, the thickness of the. Oh, the thickness is the, yeah. it's as thick as a man's arm. Yeah, because wow. if you, if it's not as as thick as that, it won't hold. Wow. So well, I'm pretty sure that guys that did that. Well, I'm not. I'm pretty sure that many of them were pretty wild. <laughs> Oh, the men were pretty wild? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And how many died doing that or well, were paralyzed for life or something, you know? Well, I mean, 
If you were alone, no one find you. <laughs> oh. um, now that bear spear. So um, there's a kind of there's a really really cool guy here in in America who uh, he won a TV show called Alone. Jordan Jonas is his name, and he um, before he was on that TV show, he went and lived with the Avanki people, the native reindeer people in the in Siberia, mm-hmm. yeah. and. He has posted pictures uh, that they had a, a very similar bear spear there, and I think at the at the museum in Oslo, I think it said it definitely said that the Sami people, the native people in northern Scandinavia or northern Norway, that they also hunted bear. Were they also were they using the spears too, the Sami? Oh yeah, but not not anymore, of course. But yeah, by, yeah. By that time, they definitely did it. I mean, you you don't have really any other choice that, than to, I mean, to, to you have to have a really proper spare to to make a bear die. <laughs> well, can we hear a little bit about what this bear is like? Because in America, you know, where I live, we have the black bears, um, and then out west, there are the grizzlies. What is the bear that you have? It seems a little different. Is it? Well, it's Swedish brown bear. Uh, it's called. Uh, but okay. as far as I know, it's pretty similar to the, the grizzly bear. But I think, it, well, I don't know if it's really a big difference anyway, actually. Now, do they still today, do, do people get killed by them every once in a while? Like the grizzlies out west? Well, it's not. It's pretty uncommon, but you have people. Or, or okay. Every fall, you have people that are being crippled by them. Really? Oh my god! Okay. Are they about the same size as the grizzly in America? I think the grizzlies are a little bigger, actually. Uh, I mean, the, the average weight on a Swedish brown bear, you could say, is about hundred. A male should be 120 kilos. Oh, uh, what is that? Is that 300 pounds? Is it uh, one kilo to every... Or is, I don't know. I'm not uh, going to know that. I think uh, two pounds is a one kilo about. Okay, okay. So... Okay. But, you know, you you can have Swedish brown bears that are about 250 kilos. That makes five, 500 pounds about. Oh, okay, if, wow. if they're really big. Wow. But now Yep. No, no. So let's so what is the habitat that they live in? It looks like in your hunting videos, I mean, it looks dense. I mean, it looks like thick, thick, these super thick forests that you're in. I mean, what is so what's a little bit about the habitat of these of the of the Swedish brown bear? Well, you could say that they're I would say that they are nice bears. I mean, <laughs> they aren't vicious. Uh I mean, they they really much try to get out of uh, normal bears. Do do try to not get in conflict with men, uh, with people actually. But but of course they they have the ability to do a lot of damage if they want, and that could be if you have a uh, a sow with cubs, or it could also be a male bear that you know. Uh, well, it could be uh, feeling 
bad, I guess it is the name. <laughs> I mean, he could have got some serious whack by another bear a few a, f- a few times ago, and it happens that we kills uh, we kill some bears that are had severe damage by other bears. Uh, so that can be that. What I'm implying is that if a bear feels that it's threatened or uh, can't really handle the situation in any other way, they'll go to attack and they'll do it. Do it good, you could say. Now uh, we're definitely going to hear all about some of your hunts, but I thought what would be kind of interesting, you know, certainly we've talked a little bit about the history there. Um, is so where I live, so I live in West Virginia, um, just 15 minutes from Virginia, and we're in the Appalachian Mountains. And bear hunting is part of the culture here. I moved here. I'm not from here. I moved here a few years ago. But every time you leave the house, especially this time of the year, the fall, the winter, every time you leave the house, you're going to see a truck with a dog, a big metal dog box on the back that has like the portholes for the dogs to, to stick their head out of. And that's a bear hunter. And when you talk to the old farmers here, you talk to the the old ladies, they'll tell you stories about their grandparents or great grandparents bear hunting in these mountains. You know, it's not uncommon for the the people here have all eaten bear. It's part of the culture. Yep. Is it is it that way where you are, or you know, has it was it part of the culture? Obviously, it was part of the culture because we talked about the history. But is it part of the culture today? Well, yes, definitely. Uh, the bear bear hunting is a really big. Uh, there is a lot of people hunting bears, uh, but due to it was almost extinct in the, you know, beginning of the nineteen hundreds. Uh, you could say that they start start to being almost extinct when the Mauser uh, rifle came. <laughs> the Mauser rifle. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's when you could, you know, even a um, not so good hunter could do a lot of damage. <laughs> okay, exactly. The difference between having to get one of these with a spear and get one of these with a long-range, uh, powerful rifle is a big difference. <laughs> it's a huge difference. Yeah. Well, yeah, you could say that by the time when the Mauser came, uh, because that was a big deal here, you could say that that's when they started to get down uh, the wolf problems and also the bear problems and everything actually uh, and of course they succeeded really good so they have to uh, you know stop hunting on everything for a while, for about 50 years you could say 50 did you yeah, say 50 uh, yeah about okay. 50 years so more or less about 50 years uh, but uh, well, the, the bear hunting and you could say all hunting around here are is really you know like every people common people is hunting and a lot of people hunt bears. What else are they hunting? Well, moose, of course. I mean, okay. that's the big main thing for most people because they they get meat from it, and then you also have uh, you know caper kales, birds grouse uh, and uh, well fox marten uh, you could say almost everything that lives around here <laughs> well i definitely want to talk about some of those other things because bear hunting is only one thing that you do 
but um so but to stick with that uh just the hunting culture there it's so it's totally part of the culture right yeah. where you yeah are. see that's like i said i grew up away from here i grew up in the suburbs so you'd have to drive like an hour for people to start deer hunting and what but this year i really you know i really realized how much hunting is culture and that i was texting my neighbors who are from where i live now their families from here their grandparents great grandparents and we're all texting and maybe we don't have too much in common normally but we're all talking to each other about deer hunting the season just opened in west virginia a week and a half ago two weeks ago and i found that so interesting i was like this is what culture is it's a tradition that is unifying groups of people that maybe have different interests normally but these rituals these traditions bring people together and i thought that is so fascinating so it's really interesting to hear that that has been preserved where you are oh yeah well yes definitely the, that's the i guess you know the the main reason for people li- li- living here out on the countryside is that they like hunting and fishing okay so uh, apart from that they could move to a you know suburb or whatever because that's why they live out here Right, right. Now, um, do people eat the bear there? Is that part of the culture? Oh, yeah. Okay. Do you eat your bears? Well, they, yeah, well, we eat the bear Sometimes? meat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Usually, it is uh, when my, I'm at home hunting bear, you know, I go around a lot, you know, sort of traveling around hunting. Uh, but I usually always start at home and... When we catch bears around here at home, we we always take them for meat. But but whenever I go away uh, on other areas, you know, far away from here, I let the the people that I live and hunt with there, they they take care of their meat. Oh, that's awesome! I think people listening who might not like the bear hunting, I think they. Is you know knowing that people eat these and you know a lot of people will preserve the fur. I think that is kind of helpful, you know. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's it's lo- not a vermin we are hunting with. It's a you know really nice animal that they're supposed to take care of also if you kill it. You mean the furs? Yeah, furs and the meat. Right, right, right. Well, like what? What do you mean? Well, I mean if you're as as far as I'm concerned, if you hunt and kill an animal, you're supposed to take care of it also, not just throw it away. Oh, well, I agree with that. But do you mean even the meat? Because like, you do, like, you hunt mink, mink and mark. Ah, you, you, yeah, yeah. you don't eat those, do you? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no okay, oh, okay. There I only take the, the fur. <laughs> I actually, you know, I actually thought, so I do a little bit of trapping and I've caught, um, you know, I, we'll eat the raccoons, some of them. We don't eat every single one. But if it's a raccoon from like deep in the mountains, I'll eat those. And then um, I've caught a few otters. And I was reading a book about medieval hunting um, in the 1300s in France. And it actually said that the medieval hunters, they would uh, catch the otters with with like a spear, like a trident, and with nets. And they would obviously keep the furs, but they actually cooked the meat for the for their dogs, for their hunting dogs. And I thought, wow, maybe some of these things like, you know, a mink or a marten. We don't have marten here, but we have mink. We have got, uh, I've never caught one, but we've got mink, we've got fisher, we've got... Um, 
otter. I was just kind of thinking if there's something I catch in the future, I wonder if I could just cook it up for my dog. I just thought of an, you know, another way to kind of use as much as possible. I thought that's interesting. Oh yeah. Well, I, I, I would think that they're, they, I'm pretty sure they'll eat it. <laughs> now, um, God, there's so much to talk about here. Um, well, so you're, it says on your Instagram, I don't know if it's mistranslation, but it says you're a professional hunter. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I get some, paid sometimes to <laughs> for hunting. But so what does that mean? So like, I guess in America, you don't really have that from my understanding, but there are like professional trappers with the state who, you know, will go and deal with, you know, nuisance coyotes and stuff. You know, they kind of do the dirty work that uh, I guess society wants them to do with nuisance animals yeah. is that kind of what you're talking about you're hired by the state or the government to to take care of a you know i don't know tell me about it yeah well it depends on the i not on, i'm not only living on you know as a professional hunter i think that's a, you should say part-time professional hunter okay okay <laughs> so but i never i guess i never wrote that one on on the instagram but <laughs> but uh, well i i'm taking care of exa for example nuisance you know bears wolves and such and even wolverine and lynx if they make problems in an area i can i go there and i'm sometimes hired by the state and sometimes hired by the landowner or the reindeer owner to help to to catch the, the you know the nuisance bear problem okay gotcha and um, I'm just thinking about someone listening to this who might think like, uh, you know, boy, do they just kill all the bears? But I'm, I'm assuming it's just like it is here in the States. There's a certain, you know, there's, there's licenses. Is where you are, is there, a, I think I heard you on Bear Saragusa's podcast. He's the one who told me, to, he sent me in your direction. So thank yeah. you, Bear. But uh, he said, I think you said on his podcast when you were talking about the specifics of it, you're kind of saying there, there's a quota. Is that how it works where you are? There's a certain amount of bears that are legally allowed to be hunted every year. Is that is that how it works? Yeah, uh, it, that's correct. You have a, uh, first and for all, in Sweden, we have uh, every five year, we have a bear poop <laughs> gathering. <laughs> really? So, so on that, and that, that is why we can, you could say, are allowed to hunt bear and have a good control over the bear population because when you hunt, uh, when you gather the every bear poop you can find, and you then you take the DNA and you can see how many you know how many different uh, uh, bears there are out there. Wow! So then you can say, well, in this area we have so and so many. Of course. You can count and on that that you don't find every bear around there, but you you will find uh, the most of the bears will show up on the DNA test. Do you take part in the in the in the scat collecting? Well, your your English is much better than mine. Scat, <laughs> that's <so> correct. <laughs> that means the yeah, yeah. That means yeah. the poo. Yeah. But do you take do you take part in the study? Yeah. Well. I mean, this is the a thing that they made everyone that hunts in the area to do. Okay. So, so I'm not. Uh, it's not not just some 
special people doing it. So whenever people are out walking in the woods, they get some, um, you know, scat gatherings. Uh, you know, uh, you have a, a small uh, bag with things to do when you find bear poop, you know, and then you gather it in that and then you just send it in to the government. Wow. And that you do every five years, not all over Sweden at the same time, but in different areas you do it every, even in all Sweden you do it every five years, but not in the same time. So then you can, you know, follow the population if you are lowering it, if it's raising, if it's, uh, you know, level. And that's that's to, you know, to keep the bear population healthy and not, you know, it's not supposed to be too small or not to be too big either population. So I would love to take part in something like that. I mean, that's so fun to me. Like this year where I'm at in West Virginia, they're having a study on river otters. They've tagged a bunch of otters. If you trap one, they'll actually pay you to hand in the otter so that they can take it as part of the study to do what you're saying with the population, to figure out the populations. I would just love to be part of that. Like I would love to be able to trap one and get it collared and release it. So any kind of like, I guess citizen science is what they call it here. I would love, that would be so fun to be collecting the scat. Well, it's interesting. And I I mean, uh, a lot of the, you know, hunting in Sweden actually is, is, you go, I'm looking for the right word. Well, it, it's uh, it's built so that people, you know, when they, for example, we have the lynx hunting is the same, you know. The government gets help with when people find lynx track, they call them and say, we have a lynx track here, for a popular, uh, you know, a, a female with um, lynx cubs. <laughs> I don't know if this right. lynx uh, kittens. Yes, I yeah, I don't know and, what they call. Them. Yeah, and they, whenever someone finds that, they call one of the government official person and they get there and they qualify it. So that's what what our quota is built on also later on. So so it so it builds on that people are helping the government to get gather information about the population we're supposed to hunt, you could say. Mm. So, now so what have they found from doing those scat studies? So what is your population of bears? Like, I mean, um, I don't know, like on a, how many bears are out there? I mean, I know that's a hard question, but if, if you're hunting in like, uh, I don't know, 20 miles, uh, how many bears are there? Like, there's a lot of bear. I've seen where I live. I've seen 23. I've ha- seen 23 bears this year. So, I mean, do you just see, I don't know, how many are there? <laughs> oh, good, good question. Uh, you could say like this, if you're hunting in a, if you are in a good a population, an area where, then we're talking about hectares, and I really don't yes. know what, uh, but you could say like this, uh, I know the numbers anyway, if you're, if you say that you're, in an area where uh, you have a really good population with bears, you're talking about between six and eight bears per 10,000 hectares. 
Wow. Uh, and of course, if you're a bear in an area where there's a lot of less bears, you may be one or two in 10,000 hectares. Um, so Okay, it, it says that, I'm looking online, it says that there's 259 hectares in one square mile. Yeah. So, okay. So eight or nine bears, I'm not going to be able to do the math, but it's a sub- substantial chunk of land. Yeah, it is. Well, you have to walk a, a lot to see a bear, actually. <laughs> right. So, But, you know, usually you don't... If you do uh, driving, uh, especially in the May and June during the mating season, you you can't see you can see some bears, but that's the best time to drive around in the you know on the gravel roads if you want to see bear. You have at least a, a decent chance in end of May, start of June, you can see some bears. Okay, but uh, now what? Yeah. Well, let's hear about a bear hunt. I mean, for one, you use dogs. Is that historically? Is that how people in your area hunted, or is that a more modern phenomenon? No, I. As far as I know, you've been using dogs. Well, in Sweden here, there has been spitz dogs in different kinds that you're been using for you know bear hunting. Okay. And, and as far as I can tell, I mean, you've had that as. As long as you had the the spear hunting and everything. Okay, so this the spear hunters would also have dogs assisting and kind of bang them up. Yeah, well, you can use a dog, <laughs> even if you, you know, to keep track on the bear. <laughs> right, right. So well, but anyway, uh, I'm using hounds as well. I have a, as it is now, I have a plot town from uh, from Steve Moore. Well, he he passed away this this spring uh, but other, uh, I got one from his bloodlines anyway and then I have a fish, Finnish hound that also hunts bear okay so I use them to for and they you know they pick the track and follow it and you know lift the bear and bay it and I try to get there or some friend of mine trying to get in in hold to kill it you could say now, um, so I've never killed a bear. Um, I have gone, I've now have a lot of friends and acquaintances who are bear hunters in this region. The way they do it is kind of similar. You got a pack, usually a pack of hounds. And the way my buddies do it is we start hiking into the mountains. Once a scent, once we catch a scent, they release the hounds. And I've gone and done this multiple times. I've only seen one bear treed, but the, the black bear will actually, when it's kind of through with being chased, um, it will climb up a tree. And that's kind of how the hunt ends for the most part. Yeah. Um, but with your bears, they don't climb up the trees. So can you just kind of describe in detail kind of what happens? Well, uh, the dog or the dogs, they, you know, like you said, when it's tired or tired of running you could say or walking or what you know it depends if it's a really big bear or it's a small bear i mean a, a small bear is always more afraid than a big bear or adult bear you could say uh, so that means that you really don't know how far the bear is going to run before it stops i mean 
big a lot of the big bears the grown up bears they they don't run at all they're just standing and uh, then you you're uh, uh, me as a hunter my my opportunity to kill the bear is to go in there and do it <laughs> of course but you know most bears don't go up in trees in sweden they they get bayed up on the ground so the dog or the dog stand and you know bay it and then you go in there with the rifle and shoot it you could say but it's it's pretty hairy situations like i've seen some of your videos and you know there you're in like super thick um like pine forests and it's like the the brush and even in areas that seem to have been logged recently the brush is above your head so yeah. you're just like waiting to see a bear streak out from you know 50 yards in front of you it i mean it's pretty hairy yeah well um well, the thing is that usually, uh, you know, I've been doing this with bear hunting a lot, <laughs> so <laughs> for quite some years now also. Uh, but I mean, usually when a bear stops and bays, that always thick brush. So, you know, when you walk in there on the bay up, uh, you know, you have to, at first you have to you know, sort of make uh, make a plan for your path onto on the bear. And also you have to, you know, make checks so you can see where the dogs are and everything. Because usually if it's a, you know, a normal bay or place, maybe you have a, a visibility to shoot the bear on. In the best of cases, uh, about 15 meters, I guess that's, you know, 20 yards or something or or many times is less so that means you have to get in close and you have to have you know good um, good control over where the dogs are so you don't you know shoot through the bear and hit the dog behind or something behind the bear so there's a lot of you know to take in consideration when you walk in there and um you know, you have to be pretty cool, but also pretty, you know, uh, what could I say? You have to be pretty fast in there also. Yeah, you got to keep your shit together. Yeah. It's high <laughs> yeah, intensity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, you have to do that. Do you, do you have any stories that you might be able to tell just about, you know, I know in Appalachia sometimes... You know, sometimes people's dogs get bit. Sometimes their dogs get killed. Um, I've had one person send me a message that the bear bit their girlfriend in the butt or something. Like, do you have any stories that can kind of show like how intense this can get sometimes? Like anything or, any, you know, a wild story, anything like that? Nej, men det är klart. Men jag får återkomma, men alltså vi hjälper dig väl så fort vi kan. Alltså du gör ju som du vill om du släpper dem bara. Det får du väl bedöma om du tycker att han håller spåren bara. I could start with saying that the most brown bears actually are nice bears. I mean, they, 
they usually don't run around killing and crippling people but if you're if they're wounded i mean it could be car accident from be, be you know before i i i work with that too you know to look at keep track on the crippled ones you know if a car hits or anything or a train or whatever i'm the one that is sent to find the bear but usually when you have a, a, a wounded bear that you're supposed to take you you made it everything you know the percentage of that anything everything can go f- wrong is uh, pretty high by then so usually you have to you're supposed to be pretty cool but also you know get your shit together <laughs> and uh, you you know i remember you asked me about that one you know any special bear hunting and i actually come to you know one come to my mind that and why why it was so special it, it was because i didn't know it was a crippled bear in that area i about was really far up north in sweden about uh, 100 uh, 100 swedish miles up north from uh, where i live far up north in sweden anyway uh, about 10 hours drive a uh, little more so we I went to some people that had shot on a bear and we didn't find it. Uh, the dog I had by that time, he found another bear and I made, made a miscalculation. I said, well, as far as I can see, I don't know for sure if this is the right bear we, we got. And we never killed it either. But I can't say for sure, but this is the bear I found anyway. So I, I sort of made the... Uh, my own consumption, I think the name is, that the the bear that are you have shot at aren't as you know, there isn't much fault on it. But a week later they called again and they had seen a bear, you know, bear tracks. So they they called and asked if you, we wanted to come there and try to hunt a bear. Uh, so we started you know, the dog I had we started trailing and everything so I put him on the track and he he just walked a few kilometers and then he sto- went round and round in a big area uh, and I also I have a local uh, not a guide but he was he know the area anyway so he went with me and we went up to see what the dog was doing <laughs> so uh, you know I thought of my my thoughts was that the bear had walked up there and then had, you know, feeding on berries and the hound didn't find the track out of there. So the bear wasn't around there, but he just couldn't. There were so many tracks, so he couldn't find the track out of the area. That was my, what my, I thought when we went there. And uh, when we came up in the area, it was about, you know, only... A small area, 300 meters by 300 meters. I mean, 400 yards by 400 yards. And he will, went all over the place, the dog, and sort of had bear track all over, but never came out of it. So I was, my plan was to take him and then go a big circle around the area to find the right track from there. And so when I came out in a small clearing, and then I had about 20 meters of sight 
I could see the see the dog, so I was, you know, just calling for him, you know, to try to catch him and, you know, take him in a leash and go around the area. And almost as as quick as I can see the dog, I also see uh, about 15 meters to the right of him. I see the uh, the back uh, of a bare back, you know, that's rising from the ground and just, you know, charging me, you know, coming like hell. I, the first shot was a little uh, far behind in the bear, uh, in the back. And the second shot was in the head, and that was about uh, three feet away. Bra! And that, that bear weighed about 140 kilos about. That's 280 pounds then. So, well... And that was the bear that we had been there a week ago to look for because he could see the wound on its uh, chest, on the, on the shoulder. That was the, actually the closest I've been to be, get caught by a bear. I wouldn't say I was pretty shaken up about it. I'm pretty used to the, that kind of situation actually. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I actually met some guys that, uh, you know, was on the hunt that uh, you know they the, the people that called me and asked if I wanted to come and join them and uh, one of the guy that walked with me into the area there uh, a year or two later on he sort of quit bear hunting <laughs> he, he sort of I, I think it, it wasn't as fun anymore <laughs> yeah I think he, he got a warning uh, it has happened before also, you know, the people get, you can't see, say that they get afraid uh, just in that moment, but it sort of grows on them. So whenever, you know, when they got to think about it for a while, they sort of, well, I'll, I'll think I'll do something else instead. Well, you know, something I've been thinking about regarding this conversation is uh I think so I think when most people would hear about bear hunting if they didn't know anything about it they'd want to know like is this ethical you know um you know is is there the biology is the wildlife bi biology there to make this okay you know stuff like that and there are plenty of other places where people talk about like ethics and whatnot but what I think about is that this is almost, and I think your story kind of illustrates this and how you're saying that some of these guys kind of decide they don't want to keep doing this, is that I feel like there's an element of this kind of predator hunting that is literally mythological. And that you're, you know, you, we see in mythology from across the world, we see in like uh, ancient traditions, like with the Maasai hunters in Africa, how they have to go and pursue and hunt a lion, at least they used to, have yeah. to hunt a lion as a manhood ritual, there's something about a, you know, the confrontation with a bear that seems like mythological. Like it's, it's a creature that can kill you. And there's something about like manhood and bravery to me that you know, I, can, I just think that that's fascinating. And 
I guess when when you think about why are you interested in doing this, you know, do you have any thoughts on why, like, why is this, uh, why are you fascinated by this? Well, I can tell you, I know why I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. And that's, you know, actually, I don't have any grudge or hatred or anything against the bears. <laughs> no, I, I'm I just, don't, I know that. I'm just so into the, I mean, the, the dog hunting or the big main thing for me if we're you know even mink hunting and uh, everything i mean it doesn't matter if it's a bear or a mink it's how the dogs are working with animal that you you know you train them for uh you know i still i can i haven't counted counted but i don't know how many hundred bay ups i've been in on a bear but still i'm exactly as fascinated today like I was the first time to go in there and see it standing or lying a bear in front of one or two dogs I mean that's that's what makes me going you could say do you know to train a young dog to make him try to make him good you don't succeed every time but to make this dog making make him a good or her a good bear dog that's what you know gets me actually interesting and yeah i just want to be clear i know that you don't dislike these animals i think maybe someone who doesn't know anything about hunting might think that we hunters don't like the animals yeah. but it's actually very much the opposite yeah, i yeah. you know i do a lot of squirrel hunting i do a little trapping deer hunting like we love those animals and we're having an experience that at least from my understanding this is the first way that people ever related to the natural world we were all ancient anywhere you pick on the globe, we were ancient hunters. And um, certainly the hunting with dogs, like I, um, our mutual friend, Bear Saragusa, who yep. told me, who sent me in your direction, he did one of my podcasts and we didn't talk much about hunting. We talked more about his earlier life when he was a dog musher, but he said very similar things to you. Basically that it's the relationship of a working dog, which is endlessly fascinating to him. Oh yeah. Yeah, it is for me too. Uh, I mean, well, of course, I killing a bear in in bear hunting, you could say that's a one part of you know a big thing, of course. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that you know if I saw a bear coming by me, I wouldn't. I'm not sure I would shoot it. There is no really meaning for me. So if not the dog, dog is doing a good work he can live. <laughs> well, I couldn't agree more. Like, you know, we, I'll see a squirrel in my front yard. I don't want to kill it. I see, we have deer in the front yard. I don't want to kill it. I want to, the time to kill it is when it's part of this, the, the hunt. Yeah. It's like the yeah. mythological hunt. You're part of an entire ritual. You know that it might take the entire day. You're part of something bigger. It's not about just killing. It's about the, the whole, to me, the whole kind of archetypal mythological process of it all. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I agree. I agree. I want it to be a part of something, you know, not the, just, just to kill the animal. That's not interesting. Exactly. I even found, so I have been on one successful um, bear hound hunt last winter. Um, I saw, I was part of it. I saw it. Uh, I didn't do the shooting, but I saw the whole process. And we hiked like 11 miles and it, for sure, it was, there was, it was, 
it was numinous is a word I use a lot. It's that I use it for the title of this podcast. There was something charged about it, but the actual bear in the, at the end actually dying like that wasn't, that wasn't the thing. The no. thing was the whole chase. That's what had an energy to it. It had something primal to it. It had something archetypal. That was the big thing. And then, and I know there's a lot of bear hunters where I live who, who will use the hounds and they don't even, you know, they're not even interested in killing. They're just, they just want the whole chase, that whole, the whole, that whole process, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, well, the thing is, you know, I mean, it's a build-up. I mean, you, you start out there, you find a track, you put a dog on it, he takes the track, and you, he works the track, and eventually he finds the bear, starts baying it, and you, you know, so you walk in there, and you, you know, you see the animal and everything, so sort of it builds up, and in the best of all occasions, then you get to shoot the bear on the bay up, and I mean, the, then the hunt is uh, <laughs> complete, you could say. Right, right. Well, that's a, a big rem- memory, and also, I mean, it's a good, you get meat and everything from it, but, I mean, it's a, the chase is sort of the, the whole experience. Yes. Now, I want, uh, with our little bit of time left here, I want to talk about some of the other hunting you do, because, like, for one, one of the coolest things I think about you is on some of your videos, you hunt on skis, on cross-country skis. And when we were in the Folk Museum in Oslo, they had a little board um, talking about the hunters in Norway, and they had a painting, which is called Fugelvild Jagern, and it shows two men in the 1800s on skis, and they both have rifles, and they have huge birds on their back. And I think it's the same bird that you're hunting. The Fargal, Fargal Uh Or no, Fugal, Fugal, whatever that is. Fugal is bird. <laughs> bird, okay. Yeah. But it looks about the same size as the bird that you hunt yeah. from your cross-country skis. So t- tell us a little bit about your you're hunting from skis because that is so cool and it looks so beautiful when you're in in the snowy landscape with the huge piling snow on top of the pine trees and the bright blue blue sky well you know actually that's almost the only uh, you know hunting uh, uh, type i don't do so much with dogs well i have a a finnish spitz that I usually use for bird hunting, and, and she were you know she's wor- working. She finds the 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 bird and she bays it basically. And my really my work is to get in there, and the, you know the beauty thing is that when she, when she fi- finds the 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 bird in the tree, she barks on it and looks on it. So whenever I get the, to see the dog. I first look on where she is looking, and then I with, uh, with my binoculars I follow her, her eyes up to where the bear, bird are. And that's pretty amazing, I think. So but, that's like how I squirrel hunt, basically. Yeah, yeah. how people squirrel uh, hunt here. I guess, yeah. But well, you can. We use dogs. You can use the spitz dog to the Finnish spitz dog to, to also to you for squirrels actually. 
So once you <clears throat> see that, it looks as though in your videos, you get off of your skis yep. and you lay down and you kind of, with your scope, you kind of snipe the bird. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's correct. But And what is that bird? What is that? Uh, you have a grouse and uh, also the, the bigger bird are capercaille. Okay, the capercaille, yeah. Yeah, okay. capercaille and, the, and okay. black grouse. Okay. So that's the main thing, but, you know, actually our bird hunting in, on those two in Sweden are, it starts uh, the 25th of August, you, for, you can start hunting. And by that time you can hunt both females and males. And then when you get to the middle of November, you, can, you only are allowed to shoot uh, males after that. And then you have hunting permission until the 15th of February. So it's a long hunting season. So, well, the beauty of it is that, you know, there are, aren't any people around there. And there is, you know, just white, fresh snow and, you know, just beautiful. A little cold sometimes, but just breathtaking beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. And is it mainly, is it kind of rolling hills or is it pretty flat? Because the skiing element has to be a little difficult if you're going, you know, it's it's another component. You know, it, Well, it's, I like it the best if it's not too steep mountains, but, you know, just uh, if it's just, you know, smooth mountains. But, you know, the birds are out there, so you have to you know, adapt for the, you know, you have to go there whenever they are there. <laughs> now, so one of the things I think is so neat, you know, I'm talking about mythology all the time and stuff like that, is when I was trying to look at different hunting gods from around the world. And um, in Scandinavia, in your Nordic mythology, there's a character named Uller, U-L-L-R, I don't know if that's called Ul. I don't know if the R is silent. But that, I guess, is a Viking hunting god. But he's he's depicted on a runestone in Sweden. And he's on skis and he's holding a bow and arrow. And uh, are you familiar with this? No, I mu must say not the name. No, but I've seen the pictures, of course. Yes. Yes. So he was like the god of hunting, the god of skiing, and the god of archery. Yeah. And it's the the Bokesta runestone is the one that he's depicted on. And he's he's so he's on skis with the bow and arrow and he's behind another hunter who is on horseback with hounds pursuing um maybe a moose or some other ungulate. But so when I saw you still hunting on the skis, I mean that how is that big or are you kind of very few people who, who do that? I mean it's just so cool. Yeah, well it sort of amazed me anyway because I mean, there are so much land up here that you can hunt on skis. And I see so small amount of tracks from other ski skiers out there. And I can't really figure out why they're not out there, you know, just, you know, running around because it's such a beautiful time of the year, just moving. <laughs> so, well, I I really love it. And it's a cross-country ski where your heel comes up so you can push forward on flatland. Is that how it works? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you, you only 
attached uh, at toe, you could yes, say. Yes. You can lift yes. your back. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Here. Okay. I've I've done that a few times. It's very different than downhill skiing, and it's it's tough. Yeah. Well, I have a you know special uh, skis for that. You know, they're about uh, I think they're ten feet long. But uh, you know, but that's to get maximum. Uh, on top of the the fresh snow so you don't sink in it <laughs> yes now one of the things i've seen you do in the snow on your instagram which i think is so neat is i guess you were part of some kind of hunting school and you were showing people how to trap but yeah. with deadfalls with the logs yeah and i know i know there's an incredible documentary um called happy people which is about the nat like the native siberian people and it follows the winter of a trapper. And that's how they would do it. I know that's how, you know, many people across the world, the the oldest way, some of the oldest ways to trap were just with these deadfalls. With, and I guess, are you, you're not allowed to do that here in America. You're not allowed to make deadfalls. Okay. Um, is that something you're still allowed to do and actually trap or just for like wilderness skills? No, we're, we're allowed to do that. So, so we are the traps we've set. We've set different kind of traps because, you know, like you said, I'm working on a hunting school. Uh, I'm working on a school uh, part time, and my uh, my um, work there is to hunt them, to to learn them hunting and trapping and such. Uh, so, we set mink traps. We set log traps. We set uh, different, you know different kind of traps so they they learn how to make different uh, you know different setups actually well can you to someone who doesn't know anything about trapping can you kind of describe the log trap like how it works well you could say it's it's actually pretty simple you could say it's two logs side by side on top of each other and then um the upper log you just make it with a um, uh, what the nail? My English isn't that perfect. Well, you have um, like a stick to hold it up. Yeah. Well, it's a stick that are made for when the marten come and it pulls. Um, you you put some bait on that stick, and when the marten gets there and it pulls the stick, then the the upper log will you know crush the the morton you could say not crush but he kills it instantly and actually actually that one that every trap in sweden that are supposed you are allowed to use has to be standardized and uh, okayed by the government and this type actually is well that's pretty cool that you're still allowed to do it the old ways with the deadfalls absolutely well i'm I'm pretty fond that, uh, especially that the, the students have been really, you know, they've been doing it really good also. So do you run a trap line or is that just kind of for the school? Well, as it is now, I don't run a trap line. But we, in the school, we have trap lines with the different kind of uh, traps, you know. So, but I'm not, uh, well, you could say I'm, uh, what's the name is, um, uh, I'm in charge for making the trap line and uh, you know checking the traps and everything of course yes. And and 
And you're mainly trapping for mink there? No, Martin. Oh, that, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Yeah, because yeah, the but, martins, the martins live in the trees. And stuff. Yeah, but we also put mink traps also because uh, one of the uh, the things for the students is to also you know to catch mink and such and lo- to know how it's working. Of course. And and are you using like the modern traps for that? Yeah, I am. Okay, I am. I've tried a bunch. I've tried. Almost every winter, I've put a few traps in little creeks trying to catch a mink, even when I find tracks on the in the sand. I've never caught one. Well, yeah, well, I caught some minks anyway, but, you know, I'm I'm really into dog hunting, so I really like yes. to hunt mink with the dogs <laughs> at first. Well, <laughs> maybe to kind of finish, why don't we talk about that? Because I don't, I have never heard anything about that. And when you read our, so someone listening who doesn't know too much about hunting, all of this stuff is highly, highly, highly regulated. There are rules about everything. And when it comes to some of the fur bearers, at least in Virginia and West Virginia, you're not allowed to shoot them. You're not allowed to hunt some of them. You can hunt bobcat, um, but you can't, you're not allowed to shoot a beaver. You're not allowed to shoot a mink. You're not allowed to shoot an otter, but you're allowed to trap them. So when I saw that you guys hunt mink, I was like, oh my God, I've never, I've never heard anything about this. So can you describe how you guys do that? And tell a little bit about going to that island in the video, because that sounds like a kind of fun adventure. Yeah, well, it is. Uh, you know, first thing it's about, uh, this is outside Stockholm, you know, it's a, about four hour, five hours drive from here from where I live. Uh, but out there you have a really big archipelago, archipelago, with yep, you know ar- ar- archipelago, yeah. archipelago. Yes, correct. And out there, you have um, you know a lot of uh, uncommon uh, you know uh, water birds in different kinds. Okay. Okay. Uh, so rare, rare shorebirds and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So. What we are doing, trying to do there, I'm, you know, involved with a, in a project out there that we're trying to decimate the mink as much as possible, because otherwise they, they, you know, almost get the the water birds to the extinct, extinction out there. Because wow, so we're trying really hard to make them, you know, to lower the the mink population as good as possible. Okay, uh, so the mink are killing. So you guys have these really important and kind of rare. Uh, seabirds and whatnot and the mink are kind of n- annihilating them. yeah that's correct that's why pretty we're all you know we're out there every year to trying to you know make it not one year but you know every year in a row you know to make them especially we're out there in the spring before the minks get their um, young ones you know the 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 mink babies i don't know the name <laughs> I don't know what they're called either. No, they're called mink but, pups or what? Yeah, mink pups. I get that's correct. <laughs> but, you know, so we try to take them before they get their pups. And that's in the end of March, uh, early beginning of April is also good. And that's why, because uh, that's because you, when you get out there that time of the year, the minks have their uh, areas. So you can, you know, easily find where you have the minks so they, they're just not you know running around all over the place 
they're more to, more of you know to certain areas where they're supposed to have their young ones and such. Usually we are one, two, or three. Uh, you could say hunting parties with dogs in ev- we have one boat with people and usually I usually want one small dog like a terrier and also a bigger dog like a hound or a a bigger dog you could say and then we usually go go on the island usually there are small islands there maybe there hundred meters by five hundred meters sometimes smaller sometimes bigger and we put in the really small islands we just put the dogs on they just run around a circle and then come to the boat if it's empty or if they're you know showing interest to a certain area we go there and they sneak you know they look up to where the mink is and start barking you know hunting it you could say and uh, Sometimes the mink runs around <laughs> and you try to shoot it with a shotgun or it takes stand under a, a pile of uh, stone or something. And then usually you have a leaf blower, you know, the, the one you're moving leaf in the spring, uh, in the fall. You have that one and you, you scare out the mink to try to shoot it with a shotgun. And the, you're, so you're kind of like it's like kind of like smoking them out like, yeah instead of making a little fire you're you know i know people back in the day would do that so instead of smoking them out you're blowing them out yeah with a you did get pretty aggravated when you put just uh, air in there so they come and in your video you see one of them takes to the water and you you kind of shoot it in the water and then your dog retrieves it right yeah yeah well that happens too <laughs> yeah well i you know, it's a the whole. That's like everything else. It's because you have to go pretty far out with a boat to get there. So first you drive a car for five hours, then you go by a pretty fast boat for one and a half hour, and then you're out there, and then you'll you'll be there until you go home again. So that's sort of the you know the part of the whole thing to be out there maybe a week or so. And you just, oh really? Yeah. You're, are you are you camping, or is, are there small houses on some of these islands, or what? Well, one of the islands there are houses, and then we we never got a. Uh, it's a little special out there, so I can't show the cabins, so that's why you never seen them. <laughs> okay. But okay. you have one island where there are cabins on. And what we, do you mean special? Well, uh, other- the owners. The it's a. It's a, a big landowner that owns owns everything there, and and they don't want anyone to see how nice it is out there. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, so I. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it's it is really special. That seems like kind of a lot of fun. It's interesting, you know, because I've tried to watch some of your videos, but obviously you're speaking in Swedish, so yeah. I don't know what you're saying. I understand. But um, but uh, you know, some of that background information about like kind of how this is also hand in hand with, you know, wildlife biology. Cause I, I've done interviews with, for instance, I've done interviews with like the wildlife biologists in uh, Virginia and they talked about similar situations. We have some, some kind of, uh, the Chesapeake Bay is, is famous for some of its birds. And some of those birds 
or so shorebirds are really struggling and they'll have they have issues where they've got to hire trappers to like trap the raccoons and the foxes because those those you know those fur bears they'll really they destroy the the nests and uh even with turtles the raccoons will destroy a lot of the turtle eggs so it's just really fascinating and i guess that's an element from your videos that i that i don't get to that i don't understand you know hearing about some of the kind of wildlife biology work that's also in there yeah well like, but i've been there for quite a few years now i think uh well, not in one row. First, I was there. I think I got there the first time, you know, about seventeen years ago or something. And uh, we lowered uh, the mink population. I can't say how much because it's not so easy to count. But you could say that we went from. Uh, in the beginning, we had about we caught three minks a day. And when we. In the end, when I start being there for a couple of years, we went down to finding one mink per two days. So that's a lot of work for one mink. Like it, I didn't realize that. Well, it's a lot of work. Well, that's not what you see on the YouTube. It looks like everything goes quick and smooth, but <laughs> so a whole day, a whole day to two days of hunting to get one mink. Yeah, but wow, that's uh, a. <laughs> yeah. I get I get upset if I can't. If I can't get uh, two squirrels in one hour with my hunting dog, I get pretty upset. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we haven't that good. But, you know, well, like I said, I was there for a couple of years. And when it went down to to finding one mink per two days, it started to get boring, you could say. So, So I wasn't there for a couple of years. I had other things to do. And then I think what five years later or seven or something, I went there again. And then the population had went up. So by that time, we found about four minks per day in the beginning. And now we're down to, you could say, uh, one mink per, uh, per dog unit, you could say, and day. Now, are your mink, are they native or are they invasive? They're invasive, but that's what makes them such a big problem out there in the archipelago. Uh, Okay, that's a big, that's a big, uh, that's a big important detail to kind of this, what you're talking about. Yeah, well, I should have thought about it, of course, but. (laughs) So they're not even, so, you know, technically they're not even really supposed to be there. So that's kind of why they're so hard on the birds. Yeah, because the birds aren't used to the mink. You know, this is far out in the archipelago so you don't have any foxes or or other predators you could say so the the birds there they're pretty you know used to surviving but just you know sticking on land you could say but the problem is when the mink come there they just find them in their nests and kill them you know every you know uh, by the spring every everyone that can find that's laying on the eggs and they just try to to lay low, and then when a mink finds them, they just bite them by the neck, and they're finished. Yes, I mean, so I love so the minks are one of the mustelids. They're one of the weasel. Yeah, and yeah. and th- they're those are that's my favorite group of animals, and I, I like them so much because they're so cute, but they're they're all so ferocious, and that's I like that they're both of those things. So yeah, the mink is part of the family of weasels and otters. Wolverine, 
um, Martin. Those are all the same animals, same family. Yeah. And I love them. I think they're all so fascinating because of what you're saying. They just will, you know, farmers where I live, they, they get frustrated with the mink because, you know, they'll tell me that the mink will come in and kill 90 of their chickens in like one night, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, they they just, they can't stop killing. <laughs> yeah. They, it, yeah. It's called surplus killing is like the biological term for it. That's fascinating. Well, I think we've had an awesome conversation. I think there are two cool things I could ask you kind of in closing, yep. um, one would be, I, I love, like I've been kind of talking about, I love hearing about tradition, um, and culture. So, um, when I talked with Megan in, um, Scotland, she's a deer stalker. She talked about how they have a ritual for when a hunter kills his first deer is, I guess it would be the red, uh, the red deer when it, and what happens is while you know the other, the rest of the group is showing you how to uh, gut the animal, one of the people in the group will grab you and they'll take the blood and they'll smear it on your face, and they call that blooding. In Scandinavia or in Sweden, particularly, are there any kind of rituals around the hunt, um, around first time hunting, anything like that? Well, I wouldn't. Well, well in some places there are and usually you it's like the same you know you take a finger with blood from the animal and you you know smear it you could say on the uh, on the uh, forehead you know up over the eyes okay uh, just a small patch and then you you get uh, a small branch of uh, uh, let's say uh, pine I think it is in the hat or in the cap you have on the side of the cap you put so after you've after the animal has been killed you take a piece of branch and you put it in your hat well usually a friend does it not the one that killed the animal but when you know when the people gathering by the the kill then usually one they they get the branch in the in the hat you could say in the side of the up on the side of over the ear you could say on the hat okay okay now is this only for first time hunting or is this kind of all the time no that, that's usually in the first time when you do it the first time okay otherwise gotcha. i i don't think i have seen it the, the other times no okay gotcha and i guess my very last question and i i love this one so i'm hoping you got something is is like are there any Swedish hunting recipes that are really interesting, like a you know a meal. Well, that's traditional. That's traditional. I'm not talking about because I make all sorts of crazy stuff. I make squirrel tacos or you know squirrel uh, pad thai. I'm not talking about that. Like a traditional Swedish dish with wild game. Uh, well. Well, I, you know, I cook a lot of me, you know, I, I cook a lot of, of course, because since I, <laughs> I want to cook the things I kill anyway. Uh, well, you know, meat animals anyway. Uh, but, you know, well, I can't say for sure that, that. Like where, so I know, I know in like France, they've got like a hunter stew in Italy. They've got a hunter stew. I know like where I live, if you talk about squirrel hunting with Appalachian people, they'll often talk about squirrel and gravy is what they grew up um, 
eating in their homes? Is there anything that, you know, it's not just what you make, but like, the, every, like you know, if you talked about moose, is there something that everyone kind of cooks at the same in, in the general region? Well, minced meat, could say. That's a, you know, spaghetti and uh, meat sauce, I think. The, really? Okay. That's okay. a, you know, that you, that, that you find about the same all over Sweden, I would say, <laughs> with meat, moose meat. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. You know, when, when, I don't know if it's taboo where you are, or it's certainly taboo in America, but when we were in Norway, we went to a little restaurant in this, uh, we were in uh, Bergen, which is like a thousand year old fishing harbor. Yeah. Um, and we went to a little restaurant that was in like a 300 year old uh, wharf house that they converted into a restaurant and we had some whale. And um, that was pretty extraordinary. Learning that whale has been kind of eaten in that area for like a thousand years, you know? Well, definitely. Well, that's a, I can understand, you know, Bergen is out on the coast, so I can understand that whale is one of the big things there. <laughs> yes, yes. And yeah, you reminded me talking about the moose just because they sell a lot of wild game in the markets in Bergen. I found that fascinating because you don't see that in America. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I think we've had an awesome conversation. Thank you for doing this. And uh, yeah, I'll add some music and I'll add some little reading. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Well, it was nice talking with you. Och det är så pass djupt här så han kan ju vara här. Eller så är han här emellan bara. Det är lätt att trampa i hål här. Det är mycket, det är mycket uppehäng liksom. <laughs> 